0: You'll also notice that we have the same handout as last week. So if you have your handout from last week, you can just reuse that one. But I assumed that you would all leave your handout from last week at home. So I printed out a bunch more. All right, so we are taking a two week extended stay in the book of Deuteronomy in order to learn how to use the law today. And we're using the New Testament apostles and their writings as our example for how they used the law, how they applied the law of Moses in the life of the church and to New Testament Christians. And so we have this inspired record of how to use the Old Testament law in this new dispensation of grace. And so We're going to continue uh, where we left off last week and that was we were discussing the laws of love. Then we were talking about how you shall not muzzle muzzle the ox while he is threshing and also uh, other important laws there. We had already covered laws of holiness, how we're supposed to use the law to learn and apply principles of right living with laws of holiness, laws of love and laws of wisdom, justice, righteousness, and equity. But we also use the law to learn about God and his character. That's number one there on the how to use the law that as we come to the letters of the New Testament, the epistles, we use the law to learn about God and his character, just the same way that the writer of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament writers use the law for that purpose. And Deuteronomy is a great book for understanding God and his character, and that's why we are taking extra time here to look at the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament, so we might learn from that example and make good use of what was written for us in the Law of Moses. And Everything that was written in the Law was not written to us, it was written to Israel, but it's written for us because it's applicable, and we'll see... How to properly apply more of the Old Testament law this morning. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Bow your heads. Father, it's fitting that before we open up your word and read it and study it together, that we stop and ask you for wisdom, ask you for grace, ask you for power, the ability to see into your word, to be able to perceive and understand. We ask you to soften our hearts To allow the Word of God to dwell richly in there. Let that seed of the Word go into the soft soil of our hearts so that it might send down deep, rich roots that will cause that seed of your Word to grow up by the water of your Holy Spirit into a wonderful fruit-bearing plant in our lives, in our words, in our actions. Father, we pray this not only for ourselves, but for our little ones downstairs. And also for all the saints who are meeting this morning around the world, you are the God of the spirits of all men and you've called out from among men and women of every nation a people to belong to you and thousands and thousands of pastors around the world are getting up today to feed the flock of God and we pray that that your word would be powerful and effective in the lives of all of your saints. Amen. All right, so... As we look into how we want to use the law to learn and apply principles of right living, we're looking at the laws of love. And I wanted to share a few more of the laws of love with you that we didn't have time for last week. And so open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy. And I want to look at Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4. There's so much good here in God's law that we can learn from, that we can apply to our own time and place. This is one of those laws of love for your neighbor. Uh, The law is summarized with the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And that golden rule, to treat others the way that you want to be treated, goes a long way. And there are sins against that law that are sins of commission. And there are sins against that law that are sins of omission where you should have done something, but you didn't do it. You omitted to do something good, uh, as opposed to a sin of commission, where there was something you were not supposed to do that you did do. Well, here's a sin of omission against the law of love in Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. All right. So there's a a law of love that the way we want other people to treat us and our things, that's how we should treat them. And uh, the golden rule applies in so many different situations. Just always keep in mind the golden rule, and you'll live a, a very loving and ethical life. It's uh, something you can learn at a young age, but we're still learning as uh, old people. <clears throat> so, finders keepers, losers weepers is not biblical. That's what this verse is saying. It's not finders keepers. It's finders keep it until the person comes who owns it. And then you give it back to them and you don't try to hide it from them. You don't hope that they never come looking for it. Uh, you let it known, let it be known that this has been lost and you found it so that you can help people have their property that has been lost, restored to them. Just like you would want other people to do for you. Uh, another great, uh, principle of love and justice. Well, one, one, uh, slight pause here as I'm looking at the text. Uh, Look at verse 5 in that same chapter, chapter 22. A woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Forever who does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Um, So that's not necessarily a law of love. That's more a a law of wisdom or justice or righteousness. But since we're right here, I thought I'd, I'd point out that The Old Testament law does have something to say about keeping men's and women's clothing distinct, which is something that our society is is completely trying to undo. And it's it's a sin against the order of creation, that God has created men and women different. And so different cultures have different ideas of what is men's and women's clothing, but we should keep a distinction uh, between men's and women's clothing and not just try to throw it all together. Have... Uh, Men wearing women's clothes and women wearing men's clothes. So I'll leave it up to your conscience to decide what is men's and women's clothing and to try to live uh, wisely in that area. But another principle of love is in chapter 23. Look at chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. Oh yeah, we did do this one. Uh, I like this one. Uh, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag go into your neighbor's standing grain. You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. <laughs> I think that's where we left off last time. Uh, so let's also then look at chapter 23 while we're here, verses 19 and 20. Back up a little bit to verses 19 and 20. This is on interest on loans. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, that is your fellow Israelite, right? your brother isn't just the brother in your immediate family, But in the context of Deuteronomy, it's talking about other Israelites. You can't charge interest on money, on food, on anything that is lent for interest, that is normally lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land and that you are entering to take possession of it. So there's supposed to be a natural family love among the family of Israel, the nation of Israel, so that they they don't charge each other interest, but instead they they act like a family. And that's the way it should be in the church as well. We can learn this principle of love as if somebody in the church is in hard (laughs) times financially and they need a loan. We don't say, well, okay, I'll give you a loan, but uh, let's see, here's the going rate on interest, and here's what the bank would charge, and I'll charge you 1% less because I'm such a nice guy. Uh, No, you know, that we're family. And we're going to loan each other what is needed without charging any interest. Um, you can give it if you want. But if you can't afford to give it and you want the, the loan repaid, just don't charge interest and you're good. So interesting law there for Israel. They could charge interest on foreigners. So God doesn't say interest is always wrong. He just says it's wrong to charge family members interest. And, uh, you know, interesting. We can learn from all of that. Um, So the Bible has a lot to say on a lot of subjects, as you see, and it applies the law of love in lots of diverse areas so that we can learn the principles and that we can uh, love according to truth and not according to misguided, well-intentioned error. Let's also look at chapter 24, verses 19 through 22. Here's another good law of love, Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back for it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So God allowed the people of Israel to experience poverty as being slaves in Egypt so that they would have compassion on those who were in poverty. And those who were normally in poverty in the ancient world were the sojourners because they're in a foreign land. They don't own any land of their own. And so they're just day laborers and can't gain a lot of wealth in an agrarian economy unless you own land. And then the fatherless, and so we have the, the orphans here, and, and, and not necessarily orphans, could be a, a, a mother, a single mother, whose husband has died in war or disease. And so the fatherless, they don't have a man providing for the household, so therefore, and then the widow, uh, whose husband has passed away, and they didn't have great stockpiles of wealth and lots of money invested in their uh, retirement <coughs> accounts and, and didn't have social security. And so this is the social security of the people of Israel, the ancient world, is that they would not uh, take everything out of the fields, but that people who were poor could come and glean in the fields. They'd uh, go over again what remnants were left from the initial pass through the harvest. And that way they're, they're working. They're, they're not just you know, having welfare delivered to their house. You have to go out and get it. But it's there for you. So a lot of wisdom here in how God set up this ancient agrarian Israelite society with a a thought and a concern for those who are poor. And we should also be wise in how we care for the poor in our community and especially in the church. Um, Another one that I think is important here is back in chapter 15. Back up to chapter 15. Of course, they're all important. I'm just pulling out some of the ones that struck me the most. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15. This has to do with slavery, which is not a controversial subject at all. And it says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever, piercing the ear with this awl. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord God will bless you in all that you do. So slavery was legal but it was limited. God would not allow an Israelite, a fellow member of God's nation, God's family, to be enslaved perpetually unless that was what he chose, what he wanted to do. And so This goes against modern sentiments. Modern people could never understand why a slave would want to stay in a household as a slave and remain there. But you can actually go back and read a number of the letters of freed slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation who said, you know, we were better off under slavery. Um, Now, that's not every case, obviously. Slavery can be cruel. It can be kind. And as an institution itself, God allowed it for the people of Israel to teach them important lessons. There's a a spiritual metaphor, there's a spiritual picture in slavery, that the Bible teaches that we are slaves to sin and that Christ has redeemed us and set us free. Now, if there was never any slavery in the history of the world, there'd never be that metaphor to be able to help us understand what what slavery means. Slavery as an economic system, while not ideal, is not inherently evil, and anyone who has owned slaves in the past is not necessarily an evil man. Uh, we can't go back and say, from our perspective, that everyone who lived prior to the Emancipation Proclamation who had slaves in America was, a, was an evil, ungodly person. That's just not a, a sophisticated way of thinking it. That's, that's a simplistic, oversimplistic way of thinking of slavery. And so you read through the book of Deuteronomy and you get a better understanding of, of what slavery is, what's uh, allowable, what's not allowable. It's always preferable to be free, but here's someone who prefers to stay as a slave and God allows for that because some people are not capable or as capable of engaging in uh, independent economic activity and succeeding in the the marketplace and some people uh, because of lesser abilities might be happier just saying well I don't want the responsibility of my own farm I just want to work here. And they might like the security of having this master who is a good master instead of having to hire himself out all the time to, and be dependent upon those market forces. So it's a complicated subject. The Word of God handles it well. I try to uh, provide a little bit of pushback on our society, which just views the Bible as very barbaric in its views of, of many things, including slavery. Uh, but you see, when you actually look into the laws, On slavery that it's not barbaric it's not cruel uh, that there is a concern here for the well-being of the the slave people say well it's innately immoral for one person to own another person well if that was true then God would have commanded the people of Israel to never have Hebrew slaves much less uh, you know foreign slaves that uh, this law didn't apply to God allowed them to have foreign slaves uh, in perpetuity so God would not have allowed something if it was innately evil. And there's all kinds of discussion and pushback. And I don't want to get into a whole message on that subject. Um, But we can always talk about it more if that's something that really bothers you. Uh, So then another uh, law here. Well, let's move on to the the laws of wisdom and righteousness and equity. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15. (laughs) this one is quoted in the new testament and it's a principle that is used by the lord jesus as well as the apostle paul where it says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the events of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established and he goes on and talks about the malicious witness. And I think I talked about this one recently with you. We might have even talked about it a little bit last week. I forget what we covered and what we didn't. But here's a principle of justice, equity, not allowing a malicious witness or a single witness to condemn someone, but needing to have sufficient evidence for conviction on any crime or any wrong or any offense. So he's very explicit and very strongly stated that this, this law concerning witnesses, uh, one is not enough. Now, the third way that we want to use the law, the proper use of the law according to the New Testament's use of the law, is that we use the law to learn about human nature and sin. Come with me to the New Testament, book of Romans. Romans 7, verse 7. There's basically two books in the New Testament that you want to master if you want to know how to use the law, and that's Galatians and Romans. Paul spends a lot of time in Galatians and Romans talking about the proper use and the improper use of the law. And Romans 7, 7 is a key verse here about this particular use of the law. And here he lays down the principle and in other places he gives us examples. But Romans 7, 7 is the principle. He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And he goes on and explains there. So, the law not only reveals God and his character and his righteousness, but it also reveals sin and shows us what sin is like. And we can learn both from reading the law. And it's useful. To know what sin is and what sin looks like. So that we can recognize it in our own lives. And we can see the temptations that, that we're falling prey to. It's like, oh, I recognize that. That's the same pattern as what we have here. That's, that's sin. And it's, of course, the opposite of God's character and God's righteousness. So, one example here that I'd like to show you in the New Testament is First Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 1-11. through First Corinthians 10, 1-11. Here's a a long section, two paragraphs, on the use of the law to show the pattern of sin that we as Christians need to be on guard against. He's exhorting the Corinthians based upon what is revealed in the Torah about the sin of Israel uh, so that we don't make the same mistakes. Okay. This is how it goes. I don't want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. Okay. It's written for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So we see evil, we see the consequences of evil. This teaches us, do not be idolaters, as some of them were in verse 7. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is the same thing that Moses was doing at the beginning of Deuteronomy, going over the history of the Israelites and their unbelief and their rebellion and their sin and the consequences of that so that they could learn from that previous generation's bad example. And we're still learning from that generation's bad example. That's why it was written down. And it says in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Very important warning there to the Corinthians. Now, one of the laws that reveals the depravity of human nature is back in Deuteronomy 14.21. So back to Deuteronomy. Here, there's a law, which is one of my favorites. I always come back to this one. Jamie doesn't understand why I like this law so much. And a lot of people would look at it and go, well, okay. But let me me try to explain why I think it's so good. At the end of verse 21, it says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Your Bible should be open, right? Deuteronomy 14, 21. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, He doesn't say why. You should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. There's implicit meaning in the Old Testament law. And God thinks that you are smart enough. He created you in his image, after all. God thinks that you are smart enough to be able to figure out why it's wrong to boil a kid, a kid is a baby goat, right? In its mother's milk. Well, try to put yourself in the position of, you know, someone who's a farmer and he's got goats. Why would you boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? Well, because people are perverse and people like to use things for the opposite of their intention. God created the mother's milk to nourish, to give life to the baby goat. But people who are perverse and twisted are like, hey. Let's boil the goat in its mother's milk. The thing that was supposed to nourish it and give its life, we're going to use to kill it. And so this shows you the the upside down, twisted moral nature of humans. And God's like, no, you know, you're not going to do this, Israelites. Uh, Even if you're not even thinking along those lines and you just got this from, you know, your parents or other, uh, your culture that does this. You're like, well, it tastes good. Okay. Uh, God says, I don't like this. I don't like it when you take what I meant for one thing and use it for its opposite. And so this is part of the implicit meaning of God's law. And it's important for us to understand that implicit meaning is as much a part of Scripture as the explicit meaning. And God expects us to get it right. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were rebuked in Matthew chapter 15 by the Lord Jesus Christ for not understanding the implicit meaning of God's command to honor your father and your mother. What do I mean by that? Well, honor your father and mother is a broad general command, and its implications are many. And so you can't just say, well, I am honoring my father and mother because I say I'm honoring my father and my mother. You've gotta look at what are all the implications of that? Am I actually doing that in my life? And so Christ held them accountable for not understanding the implications of the commandment in one particular area. And that was that the Jewish people had come up with this tradition, this teaching, that you didn't have to take care of your elderly parents when they were too old to work and provide for themselves if you had dedicated all of your wealth to the temple or to the um, synagogue. And so if you said, well, when I die, all my money's going to the synagogue or going to the temple, so I don't have to give any money to my elderly parents because you know God comes first. Uh, Jesus rebuked that type of attitude and he said you are dishonoring your father and your mother. You're breaking the fifth commandment uh, because you don't recognize the implications of honoring your father and mother extends to taking care of them when they're elderly and you can't just say well I gave all my money to God. So this is, this is just something I want to get across. that. You're, you're looking for uh, the, the right implications, the spirit-led, the righteous, the spiritual, the logical implications of the text. And that's why you need to meditate on Scripture. Meditate on a verse like, you shall not boil a young goat in some other's milk. And don't just read over and be like, eh, ancient time, ancient place, no relevance to me. Uh, no. God put it here. He wrote it in the Bible for a reason. It wasn't just for that ancient time, and ancient place. It was written for you. And what intention does God want you to learn from this, even if you don't have any goats and you don't cook any goats? Um, God still has something here for you to learn. This is a a principle that will apply to many areas of life that you don't become perverse and use things for the opposite of what God created them for. Um, All right. So then that was the third principle, using the law to learn about human nature and sin and a couple of examples of that. Let's go on to number four on your handout. You use the law to point to Christ and appreciate what you have in the new covenant. This is something that Dallas mentioned uh, recently as he's been reading through the law. It's made him appreciate so much that he doesn't have to go to the temple and offer a guilt offering and sacrifice offering and thank offering and and all these things that you have to go through and purification rites and, and all that that's in the law. He's like, I'm so glad that I'm freed from all of that. And that Christ is my once for all sacrifice and now my whole life is just a living sacrifice to God. So you use the law to point to Christ. That all these sacrifices and offerings and all that was going on at the temple was pointing to Christ. And to appreciate the, the much better thing that we have in the new covenant. Not that there was anything wrong with the old covenant. It was the right thing for its time and place. But now something better has come along. We are now in a state of spiritual maturity. Not learning these things. ABCs, but now we have uh, the substance, which is Christ. So, for one example of this, I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. This is a good section. I want to read a large section here, starting in verse 9. It says. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium, that's somebody who talks with spirits, or a necromancer, someone who talks to the dead or who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now, tarot cards, uh, you know, getting your fortune read, having your palm read, um, using a, a Ouija board to communicate to spirits, you know all these types of occultic practices that are on the rise uh, in our country and there's, you go to the, the bookstore at Target and all the young person's section is filled with witchcraft books that are more and more uh, looking like the occult all the time, uh, you, you recognize this is satanic, this is of the devil, and that we are not going to engage with the, the dark side of the spiritual world to try to have them communicate to us and guide us. Um, same thing with astrology. Uh, astrologers are also false prophets like this. We don't, we don't go to them. But instead, we have God as the one who speaks to us from the spiritual world. He's the one that we listen to. And so, He does that through prophets. And look at what it says in verse 15. In contrast to the nations that listen to the fortune tellers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Sinai, on the day of the assembly. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken and not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. But in fact, you're supposed to put him to death, right? So the uh, prophets that God sent were like moses but christians and others have rightly seen in this that this points ahead ultimately to jesus as the prophet like moses because jesus was the mediator of a new covenant and that moses was the mediator of the old covenant christ is the ultimate prophet as the mediator of the new covenant the better covenant and so we appreciate what we have in christ and we listen to what christ says And that's, in fact, what the New Testament tells us to do in applying this in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. Also, uh, come with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. We referenced this when we were preaching through Mark recently. It says, starting in verse 22, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree. There's many ways you could put someone to death. But here God in his foresight uh, talks about what happens to a man who hangs on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And this is what Paul refers to then in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. That Christ became a curse for us. For the law says... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So we use the law to point to Christ. Deuteronomy points to Christ with the prophet and with the man that is hanged on the tree and in many other ways. That's just two examples from this section in Deuteronomy. Another thing that, uh, well, let's skip that one. Let's go on to the second section, how not to use the law. So we've got positive examples of how we are supposed to use the law. And we've got some negative examples. Examples of how we're not supposed to use the law Um, a good summary of this is in Romans chapter 3 verse 31 Once again the book of Romans if you want to understand the law you want to master the book of Romans It's his most detailed treatment of the subject and not just Paul's most detailed It's the most detailed treatment of the subject in the scriptures uh, How the New Testament Christian relates to the Old Testament law And what did I say? I said uh, chapter 3, verse 31. Notice what Paul says. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So when Paul asks a question like this in the book of Romans, what he's doing is he's guarding his listeners from making a false conclusion based upon what he said. So he's been speaking in this chapter about how the law doesn't justify us. And you can't be justified by doing the works of the law. And so somebody might come to the conclusion then, well, now that we're saved by faith and not by keeping the law, that means that we're overthrowing the law. Uh, that, you know, we're just get throwing that part out of our Bible. We're separating Christianity from the Old Testament. And that's what, of course, some Christians have tried to do and still try to do. But Paul would say, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying here. And verse 31 do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. That's the strongest way of saying the negative. That would be a totally wrong conclusion to say that Christians are throwing out the law. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And it could be also translated as the New American Standard does, we establish the law. That we put the law in its proper place. That we use the law according to how God wants us to use the law and has designed the law to be used. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, I'm against the law. He's saying, I'm against misuse of the law. And what I'm teaching you is the right way to use the law. This is what Christ intends. And he's the apostle of Christ. And his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he knows what he's talking about. So we, we go to, to Paul and the rest of the New Testament to learn how not to use the law as well. Uh, we're not overthrowing it. Now, Misuse of the law tends to stem from three things that I have there on your outline. Maybe more if this is what I came up with. Number one, it comes from a misunderstanding of grace and salvation. And that's really what the book of Romans is all about. And the book of Romans, the book of Galatians is trying to teach Christians about grace and salvation. And that trying to keep the law in order to be saved or to be sanctified is not the purpose of the law. Um, let's uh, take a look at Romans chapter 3 verses 20 to 22 just back up a page or so and there it says for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin so like I said before use the law to learn about sin you use it to learn about God and his righteousness you learn about sin and so that's a proper use of the law But trying to be justified by keeping the law, that is not the proper use of the law. And uh, turn to Galatians. Let me show you a number of examples of what Paul is talking about here from Galatians. I've got a whole series on Galatians as well as Romans. I've taught both of those books in my years in the pulpit here. So this will be reviewed for some of you. And if you want more, go back and listen to the series. That's why they're there. Galatians 1-7. He is lamenting that they have deserted Christ and the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel in verse 6. And verse 7 says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Galatians is written because Paul is concerned about a distortion of the gospel of Christ that was making its way through the churches of Galatia. And we can uh, see more about that as we continue. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that's freedom from the law, if you're understanding Galatians in its context, our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. So, what Paul is saying here is that these false teachers were trying to make New Testament Christians, Gentile Christians, live under the law of Moses Paul says that's a misuse of the law you're not supposed to make Christians live under the law of Moses and then verse 14 here he's talking about his conversation with Peter on this subject and he says when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel I said to Kephas, that's Peter before them all if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews so there were certain Jews that were trying to force the Gentiles to live like Jews. That means live under the law of Moses. Paul says, eh. wrong answer there, Peter. Uh, you know that you don't, you've been set free from the law and we've got a new covenant. So why are you trying to make these Gentile believers live under certain aspects of the Old Testament law? Uh, that's the, that's the big idea here in Galatians, A whole book devoted to it. Um, verse 21 as well. Same chapter, Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So you're not going to stand before God as righteous because you've kept the law. Now, that's not how we get a righteous standing in God's courtroom. And that's a misuse, and misunderstanding of the law. And that's not, not how we're supposed to use it. And it's misunderstanding grace and salvation. Salvation by works instead of salvation by grace. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So us trying in our own strength to keep the law of Moses in order to be right before God, that's what Paul says here is foolishness. That's uh, being perfected. That's trying to, to reach perfection through obedience to the law. And that's not how it works. Uh, But instead, it's through faith, as he makes clear, then, in the rest of the chapter. And one more verse here, chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. This one's very helpful. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So we're supposed to listen to the law, but we're not supposed to be under the law. There's a difference there. And so if you can understand what Paul means by, you should listen to the law, but you shouldn't be under the law, then you'll avoid this mistake of uh, misusing the law uh, stemming from misunderstanding grace and salvation. Number two, uh, misuse of the law also stems from misunderstanding the church and Israel. The church and Israel. One of the the key tenets of dispensational theology, which is very helpful, uh, is that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is a nation. The church is not a nation. We are a group of people that live within a different nation. We're not setting up our own nation as the church. We live by the laws of the state of Nebraska. We live by the laws of our federal government. Uh, We're not a nation with our own holidays and our own justice system and our own courts and our own police officers and all of that. We're not. We're, We're more like a family. Living in the midst of a nation. And we submit to the governing authorities. We don't try to challenge them and overthrow them and set up our own government. And so that's very different from Israel. Israel was their own nation, their own king, their own judges, their own laws, their own justice system, their own holidays. And so got to keep a distinction between Israel and the church. Otherwise, you really start to get confused and you really start to misuse the law. It's like, well, Israel had this. The church should have this. No, Israel's a nation. The church is not a nation. There's a difference. So keeping a distinction between Israel and the church is key here. Now, if we're still in Galatians, look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 16. Galatians 6 16 is one of the infamous verses that is misused to try to equate Israel and the church. Because Paul writes here in Galatians 6 16 that for all who walk by this rule, and that is that it's the new birth in Christ by faith, That counts for salvation and not circumcision or uncircumcision, which was a mark of the law, uh, the Israelite law in the Torah. As for all who walk by this rule, the law of faith, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, some people say the Israel of God here is a reference to the church. And so we've replaced Israel. We're now the Israel of God. That's not what Paul is saying here. And it doesn't jive with the rest of Paul's teaching In the New Testament. And I'd have to do a a whole sermon or two. To unpack that. And and prove that to uh, proper satisfaction. But just listen to my Galatians series. If if you want that proof. I don't have time for it now. I just want to point out. That this is one of the causes for misusing the law. Is a misunderstanding of the church being distinct from Israel. Equating the church with Israel. Or another mistake that is in parentheses there. Is equating America with Israel. Well, America is a nation, and so whatever laws God gave to Israel, we should have as our laws in America. And we should make America this Christian nation and we'll be blessed by God And, and this type of idea. And that's a misuse of the law also. The, the Old Testament law was not given so that any nation that chose could adopt God's law and get the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was given to one nation. You couldn't just choose, oh, now we're going to be God's nation because we're going to keep God's law. Uh, It doesn't work that way. God initiates the relationship. And God right now is not saving America. He's saving the church. Now, America's been blessed with many Christians in the past, and it's great to have a Christian culture. I'm not against that. It's great to take biblical principles and make them into law. Great. I'm not against that. But don't confuse the promises of God to ancient Israel with promises to God to America. This is one that happens very often with the National Day of Prayer. And we'll quote from Old Testament words of promise to Israel that if we confess our sins as a nation, if we seek the Lord's face, then he will heal our land. That was a promise to Israel. Now, is there application of that? Sure. If a nation repents of their sins and draws near to God, will God bless them? Yeah, that's, that's true. You see that with Jonah preaching to Nineveh. They repented and God relented of the judgment that he was bringing on them. But be careful that you don't try to equate A special covenant with Israel and God's promises to that people uh, with any nation on the earth today. uh, You can principalize text properly, but don't equate America with Israel or the church with Israel. Keep a distinction there. Uh, The third misuse of the law, the third reason why people misuse the law is the misunderstanding of the covenants. If you don't understand the biblical covenants, then you're going to have misunderstandings about our relationship to the Old Testament law and how to use it. And what I mean by misunderstanding the covenants is uh, that people come up with a doctrinal system that they impose upon the scriptures of a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. And they'll interpret the whole Bible through this covenant of grace and covenant of works. But nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to do that. Nowhere does God say, well, this is a part of my covenant of grace, and if you uh, understand this part of the Bible through the covenant of grace, you'll have a proper understanding of what I'm talking about. Here's covenant of works, and if you understand this part of the Bible through the covenant of works, those terms are not in the Bible, that teaching is not in the Bible. It's a system that people have imposed on top of the Bible. Instead, we just need to stick with what the Bible teaches and allow the Word of God itself to tell us what is a covenant and what is not a covenant. Don't be making up additional covenants and adding them to the scriptures. Just go with the covenants that are in the Bible. Why not? That seems like a good way to understand it to me. Um, So the covenant of law and the covenant of grace uh, leads covenant theologians to misuse and misunderstand the law in a number of ways. Not that we don't have a lot of agreement with them also, but this is where some of the problems come from. uh, And we want to avoid that. So three examples then. Here's the, the three reasons why people misuse the law. They misunderstand grace. They misunderstand the distinction between Israel and the church. They misunderstand the covenants. So what does that do? What are some of the examples that leads, uh, what does it lead to a misuse of the, the Old Testament? Well, one of the things that it misleads on is tithing. Tithing was a part of the ancient Israel tax system. We have a tax system. And we have to pay a certain amount. In fact, April 15th was just this week and we all had to pay a certain amount uh, according to tax law. And so tithing was the tax law, the tax code of the Old Testament. You don't take the the tax code of a nation and apply it to a family. We're a family. You don't give 10% to the church. You give whatever is necessary. You give whatever you want to the church because we take care of our own. I don't go to my kids and say, well, here's 10% of my income. This is what you get for being my kid. Uh, no. We just are a family. We just share. We just give. We're just generous. And so that's the way it is in the church. And that's the way the New Testament talks about giving. It never says in the New Testament, give 10%. And so for me to preach that you should give 10% based on Old Testament laws a misuse of that law, and I'll never do it. If you ever catch me preaching that you're supposed to tithe, you know, tell me, Tim, you said you weren't going to do that. Because one of the reasons why preachers like to preach on tithing is because we don't trust the people of God To do what is right with their money and to take care of the family. And so we think we have to put law upon them to make them do something that they wouldn't do otherwise. That's not what being a Christian is about. Being a Christian is about the freedom to do what you want with your own things. And what you want to do with your own things is to love the family of God. Just like I have freedom with my money to love my family. I got freedom with my money to love my big family. And I can love you however I want. As much as I want. We're free. We're free. That's the freedom that Paul was talking about in Galatians. He doesn't want anyone to put a yoke of slavery on you. So you come to church and you're like, oh man, I got to give 10%. I don't want to give 10%. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you to give 10% because you're supposed to give 10%. He wants you to just give because you want to give. If you don't want to give, then don't give. And learn how to want to give. That's the second part. If you don't want to give, don't give. But learn how to want to give. That's that's the, the freedom that we have in Christ. So tithing, uh, one of those Old Testament laws that is improperly applied to the New Testament. Uh, you can you know, look up all the passages in the New Testament I'm giving. 1 Timothy <laughs> chapter 6, Romans chapter 12, 1 uh, Timothy chapter 5. And, and yes, you do have a, a debt to God's family. I have a responsibility to care for my family. You've got a responsibility to care for the family of God. But it's a responsibility that is not under the Old Testament law. Okay, you're not under the Old Testament law. Number two. Now, is 10% a good round number? Sure. You know, if you want to use that as a a guide, I got no problem with that. Just don't make it a a rule that you put on other people. If you want to say, well, 10% was the number God gave, so I'm going to give a tithe. Great. I got no problem with that. Uh, But don't go around telling other people you're sinning if you don't give 10%. Um, All right, so number two. The priests and the Levites in the Old Testament law have been horribly misused in the church uh, and have contravened a lot of New Testament teaching. What I mean is, is that we, as Christians, in the centuries of the church, the millennia of the church, have taken the Old Testament laws concerning the priests and the Levites and have used that to create within the church a distinction, a, a wrong distinction. So we don't want to create distinctions where there's not, and we do want to keep distinctions where there are. To create a distinction between the laity and the clergy. And the clergy, people like me, who are full-time in the ministry, we're the, we're the clergy. We're like the priests. We're like the Levites in the Old Testament. And so we you know, start to call clergy priests. The Bible says, no, no, no. You do not call your clergy priests. That's, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. It's not understanding the new covenant. That's a misuse of the old covenant. And so we don't create a hierarchy in the church. Okay, here's the the high priest, the chief priest, the one who's head over all the other priests. And here's the clergy with their their archbishop and their bishop and then the the lowly guys down here. No hierarchy. Jesus taught that in the church, we're a family. There's no hierarchy like that. Instead, you have just leadership that is appointed by the congregation, that they do have authority, but they're all equal. And I don't have a, a higher position of authority because I'm the one who's in the pulpit all the time. But the, the men who sit on the elder board that you've appointed, <laughs> they have equal authority. And there's no hierarchy at our table. We're the knights of the round table, right? No head of the table. Uh, Christ is at the head of the table, and only him. So we don't want to use the Old Testament system of a clergy-laity distinction and carry that over into the church. And, and it goes against New Testament teaching. Um, we are all priests, Revelation six says. So yeah, if you want to call me a priest, fine. But you better call yourself a priest too, because the priesthood of the believer. Romans 1.6, we're all priests. And, and we're all in the ministry. Ephesians 4.16, don't say, well, Timothy's in the ministry, but I'm not. And we're all in the ministry. Uh, I'm paid to, to do the full-time teaching of God's word, but you're in the ministry because all work is sanctified, all work is holy, and you represent Christ everywhere that you go, and we're, we're all priests, we're all sanctified. So don't fall into unbiblical thinking. Uh, and use Old Testament categories to try to apply to New Testament truth. Priests and Levites. Then third, the foods. Uh, the New Testament is very clear that the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his apostles made all foods clean. So we don't go back to the Old Testament and say, well, we're not supposed to eat pork because you know, God's law said, uh, don't eat the pig. Uh, don't eat the centipede. I'm not interested in eating centipedes. I'd much rather eat pig. But there's nothing that's going to defile me if I travel to another country and I have to eat the centipede. Um, all foods are clean. Jesus made that very clear. It's in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Jesus himself said it to Peter in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. So the Old Testament food laws, those prohibitions between the clean and the unclean, do not apply in the New Testament. So the New Testament helps us to navigate through. Well, do I apply this principle? What is the principle I'm supposed to apply? What's the right way to apply that principle? Uh, come with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Now, some people would say, well, that's abolishing the law. You're abolishing the, the priests and the Levites, the clergy, laity, distinction. You're abolishing the, the commandments against foods and other prohibitions. And Paul would say, no, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm establishing it. I'm, I'm using it the way it's supposed to be used in this new dispensation of grace, this covenant of uh, Christ, the new covenant. So Colossians 2:16 and 17. Paul explicitly says to the churches, us included, and this is written to Colossi, but through, through Colossi to all Christians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Anyone who wants to say, Christians, you've got to keep the festivals. You've got to keep the Sabbaths. You've got to keep the dietary laws. The scripture explicitly says, nope, don't let them do that. Now, if you want to keep uh, an Old Testament festival and you're going to have a Passover feast at your house, great. But don't tell me I'm a sinner for not doing it. And if you want to keep uh, some of the dietary laws of the Old Testament, great. I don't care. Eat what you want. Don't eat what you want. If your conscience says, I'm not supposed to eat this, then don't eat it. Just don't tell other Christians that they're sinning if they don't live by your conscience. Uh, Because the scripture says, let no one pass judgment on you. It doesn't say that you're not allowed to have your own conviction. Paul says you're allowed to have your own conviction in Romans. He just says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you for your conviction. Because we don't want to misuse the law. We want to use the law... Properly, as Paul and the other apostles teach us how to use the law. So, hopefully, this study of how to use the law and how not to use the law makes you want to go back and read and meditate on the law and to receive instruction from it. Instead of unhitching our faith from the law, we want to rehitch our faith to the law because it has great power in our lives. And we are very thankful that God has given us the Torah. As the foundation for our knowledge of God and His character, understanding sin, and understanding principles of righteousness. All right, greet one another and have a great morning.